Good morning, Encounter. As we enter into today's scripture and word together, I want us to think about how this can apply in our life groups. Today is our first um, pre-launch of our life group meeting in our open house Sunday format. And as you open your house, I hope that that's... um, a physical reminder of this story of those who opened up a house to bring their friend to Christ. Let's open with a word of prayer. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence here with each of us today. I pray that by your spirit, you would fill the space between us, that we would become aware of you here with us, that you would speak to each of our hearts in a way that we can be present and aware of you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands to receive all that you have for us. I pray that as your word goes forth, that it would bear good fruit in each of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever tried to get into somewhere special like a concert or a a theme park or somewhere where a large group of people were gathered? And have you ever felt like, hmm, I want to see this thing that's happening. I remember when the Raptors were winning their big championship and um, everyone was going out to even to their parade after. And I remember watching it on TV and thinking, okay, we were, we were thinking, should we go? Should we not go? And just seeing the amount of people that were just on the side of the road just to cheer on the Raptors as their their parade went through, having won, won the basketball championship, it it just reminded us that, okay, we don't want to go there. People were stuck on the subway and trying to get there. And it was such large crowds of people. And sometimes when that happens, we can have one of two responses. One is, I have to be here for this historical moment. And I'm going to be one of those people. Or it could be, you know what? <laughs> it's not totally not worth it. Um, another day, another time, maybe we'll try to get in um, this place or that place. And so today's story, we're going to come to a story where this is happening, where there's a large crowd of people and they're all there to see Jesus. And we're going to see that some of them had the response of saying, no matter what, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be a part of this historical moment. I am going to get to Jesus. I'm going to see what's going on. And maybe different people had different motives for that, but um, we're going to kind of see how that story unfolds today. So just keep that kind of large crowd idea in your mind as we open up the scripture today and turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, and so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? 
Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. We're going to be looking at three main things today. The room, the real need, and the response. So let's start with the room. First of all, there is no room. <laughs> That's what we're told here in the story. There is no more room. So imagine all these people surrounding this little house. There's this little house in Capernaum where Jesus is staying. Many scholars believe it might have even been Peter's home. And so this is a place that, that's familiar to Jesus. He's been allowed to come into this home and to begin preaching there, using this as a place to converse and to talk about God and his kingdom. And we see people coming from far and wide. They've probably heard about Jesus. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already been known to, to heal. He's healed the leper. He's exercised demons. He's done all sorts of things that have drawn people who are coming even out of curiosity. Just to say, oh, let's see this teacher. I've heard about this rabbi. I've heard that he does healings. Oh, I've heard he does exorcisms. Oh, I've heard he's a great teacher. Let's come and see. And so people are traveling from far and wide at this point. Obviously, there is no television. There's no live streaming of this event. You have to be there or you're going to miss it. <laughs> There's nobody taping it for later. There's no Zoom meeting to, to, to jump in on and have a look. You have to be there in person. And so we're told that there's no more room left, not even outside the door. So you can imagine people are, 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 are in really close quarters inside and then outside as well. They're just surrounding this building, creating commotion. Um, this story appears in Matthew chapter 9. Um, it also appears again in Luke's gospel. And we're told in all three accounts that the people are like a multitude, like a mob. <laughs> There's, it's probably really noisy. I don't know how Jesus could amplify his voice to be heard, but people are, are just so excited, so curious to see who Jesus is, to see maybe that if Jesus will do something for them. And out of this crowd of curious people, we see um, an even more curious sight, which is four men carrying their friend, their friend who's paralyzed, he's a paraplegic, he's lying there on a stretcher and they're trying to find a way in. They've heard Jesus can do miracles and they want to see it for themselves. They, they're trying to get their friend to Jesus. And yet they're told there's no more room, even outside the door. They, 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 can't, they can't see Jesus. They can hear him, but they can't get to him. It says they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. Now, if you've ever been in a big crowd, do you, you know sometimes when you're trying to see the action, everyone's kind of pushing and shoving and you're like, what's going on here? And you try to find a little, a little window, a little hole to kind of look through and see what's going on. But their friend, he can't, he can't jump up and see. He can't push through the crowd. He has to be carried on a mat. And so these friends at this point have a choice to make. They can say, oh, there's no more room. Let's not bother 
Jesus right now. We'll try to find a better time. Sometime that's more convenient. Sometime that's more comfortable. Sometime that's easier to get their friend to Jesus. They could say, you know what? We did the best that we could. We tried our best. Um, we'll just drop our friend here on, on the mat and we'll just go look for ourselves and we'll tell you what happened. We'll explain it to you later. But instead, these friends took it upon themselves to make room where there wasn't any room. So what do they do? They dig a hole through the roof. Now, houses in Capernaum at this time, some of them would have these stairs that are part of the house, but on the outside of the house. So in order to get to the roof, it being like a separate area, almost like a patio area, if you think of that, on the top of the roof, and they have to go up the stairs at the side of the house to the top. And so the roofs were made of... Um, Lots of wood, long slats, and then short slats in between, covered in mud and clay often. And sometimes if the person was wealthy enough, there would be tiles. And we see that in um, Luke's gospel that says, he says they pulled up the tiles as they were doing this. So what do these friends do? Well, first of all, they put their whole strength. It's going to cost them something to carry their friend up. It takes, takes four men to carry him up up the stairs and they're carrying him up the stairs and onto this roof and they're going to tear the roof apart. So it's going to cost them something. It's going to cost them something in terms of their physical strength, in terms of their time. Like they're going to miss hearing the things Jesus saying, hearing what's going to be talked about at the water cooler the next day, because they're going to start to have to take the time to carry their friend up these stairs to get him to the top of this roof. Then it's going to cost them something in terms of a mess they're going to make. They have to pull, pull through tiles and, and dig through clay and mud and get dirty and get messy. And they're going to, it's going to cause some breakage. <laughs> they're going to start breaking this roof and then they're going to have to think, hmm, well, I'm going to be held responsible for breaking this man's roof. We're going to have to repair this. We're going to have to rebuild this at some point. But they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus, to make room where it seems like there's no room. And so they begin to dig through this wall and, sorry, this, this, this roof and to get an opening made just the size to put their friend down. So it's got to be a big opening. It's not a tiny little hole that can be easily repaired. They're ripping this roof apart. So they've moved beyond curiosity. They're no longer part of this curious crowd that wants to hear the word Jesus is saying or wants to get a glimpse of what Jesus might be doing for someone else. They've been moving into compassionate action. They know their friend has no other hope to walk again except this Jesus of Nazareth who's been healing lepers and and, and healing withered hands and, and helping those who can't see to see again, who's been healing the deaf and the blind. Surely he can help their friend. And so they move from curiosity about who Jesus is to a compassionate action. They already believe that Jesus can do something about their friend's situation. And now they're willing to put their, their belief into action. They're saying, what is Jesus doing? Where is Jesus? Let us join with that. See, there's room for us. Even when it seems like there's no room, sometimes it can seem like everybody else has God's attention. Like everybody else's request is, might be a little bit more important. 
of his time and attention. And sometimes we can hold back really bringing ourselves and bringing our loved ones to God. Sometimes there's things that hold us back from coming before Jesus, from making room for those that we care about, for our friends and our family, for making room for them to bring them to Jesus through prayer, through um, evangelization, through receiving his help. We want to get our our people (laughs) to his presence. And part of that will cost us something. Are we willing to pay the cost to make room for others to be in front of Jesus? It might cost us something in our schedule to make room in our schedule for prayer, to pray for those that we've committed to pray for, our friends, our coworkers, our family who don't yet know Jesus or who know him and have needs that need to be brought to him. It'll cost us something to make room in our schedule. It might cost us something to make room in our homes, to invite other people over, to to eat a meal together, to share, to study the Bible together. It might cost us something in being hospitable, in opening up our relationships and saying, you know what, I have enough friends. I have, I have enough of my people. I, I don't need to make room. But where is God calling us to make room? Where is God calling us to open up our lives, to open up our time for what he is doing, for what he is wanting to do? How can we put our faith into action in ways that maybe we never considered before? Don't give up when things become inconvenient or uncomfortable. Often faith pushes us past that point of convenience. It will push us past those points of comfort and say, how can I open up my life? How can I open up my home? How can I open up a way for my friends, for my loved ones to come to Jesus, to make an opening, to see a miracle? Is there room? Now, making room, it might be messy. (laughs) It's often not um, a pleasant experience when we're making room for Jesus in our lives. We're making room to, to bring our needs to him. So for these four friends, they're bringing their friend to Jesus and it's getting messy. They're getting dirt under their fingernails. They're getting sweaty in the, in the hot day sun, just having to remove these tiles and these sticks and dig through the mud and the clay that was on top of this roof. It might get messy in our hearts, making room for Jesus, having to revisit areas in our life in the past, traumas or disappointment or unforgiveness, and bringing that to him, opening those parts of ourselves up that we closed off, that we closed off because we didn't want to feel the pain anymore, that we closed off because we didn't think it was a big deal but that God might be asking us to open up to him so that he can bring healing, so that he can bring his life. It might get messy in relationships. We might think, you know, to get close enough to a person to, to, to let them see God at work in my life, it might be messy. It might be messy to invite them into my home and to, to get close enough in an interpersonal way in order to open a way to Christ, to let them see the sin in my life, the imperfection of me, are we willing to make room? Are we willing to make room for others? 
And so here we got these friends. They've come, they've dug through the hole in the roof. They start to lower their friend down. And if you can imagine the crowd inside is thinking, what is going on? I'm sure they heard the noise and they felt the mess and the dust and the and all of a sudden the, the mud and the leaves and the things falling down. And they see this man being lowered. This man with a very obvious need. He can't walk. We don't know how long he's been that way. We don't know his age. We don't know why. We don't know if he was born not being able to walk or if this was some, a, a result of an accident. We don't know what's going on. But we do know he had an obvious apparent and real need. And his friends were willing to do anything to get him to, right in front of Jesus. So as he's being lowered down, everybody can see the need. Everybody's looking at this man and thinking, oh my goodness, um, can Jesus do something about this? This is a real need. There's no pretending that, that this is getting, he's getting cured. This man has a real need. So as everybody's looking at this man and looking at the impossibility of his need, what does it say Jesus is doing? In verse five, he says, seeing their faith. So Jesus isn't looking at the man's legs that aren't working. He's not looking at the impossibility of this situation. He's looking at their faith. He's not even looking at the paralyzed man's faith. He's looking at the friend's faith. He sees their collective faith. He takes notice. He pays attention. This word in Greek, seeing, is to notice, to pay close attention to. Jesus is not paying attention to the mess of the house. That's not bothering him. He's not saying, who's going to fix this roof? He's not worried about the cost. He's not worried about the mess. He's not worried about the impossible situation of this man. He is paying close attention to their faith. He sees that their faith caused them to be moved into action. And he says to the paralyzed man, so he sees their faith, the friends, the man together, the collective faith, and then he turns his attention towards this man. And what does he say to him? It's so curious because you would think and everyone would be expecting Jesus to either say to the man, I can't do anything for you, or be healed as he did for others. But he says to the man first these two precious words. My child. My child. What that must have done to this man's heart. First of all, there was a social stigma on people who were sick or people who had a physical um, ailment or disability or were paralyzed like this man. There was this uh, Jewish understanding and belief that these ailments, illnesses, issues, and problems were caused by sin. So it must have been something either this man did or his generational line. And we see that again as Jesus heals a blind man later, the Pharisees really digging into that question of sin and saying, you have no right to tell us you were healed because you were born in sin and we know it because you were blind. And so the same goes for this man. There's a social stigma around this. There's a spiritual stigma around being paralyzed. And yet Jesus comes to him and says, my child. He's encouraging him. In Matthew 9, it says, take heart, son. He encourages him. He, he speaks life into him. He reminds him of his true identity, that he is God's child, that he belongs to God. 
that he matters, that he is more than just a paralyzed man, that he is God's child, God's beloved son, that he is loved. This this word, my child, is quickly followed by, your sins are forgiven. Now, this statement would have people gasping in the room for various reasons. (laughs) So, my child, you're not identified to Jesus by your sickness, by your sin. That's not how he's viewing or seeing you. But he will deal with your sin and he will deal with your sickness. But know that you are loved and you are identified by your relationship with him. This man is now right in front of Jesus, and that's right where he needs to be, to have his real needs met. The first real need is not to be healed of his paralyzed legs. It's not to be able to walk or jump or do all the things that I'm sure he always longed to do. But when Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven, first of all, he's saying, I know what your real need is, to know whose you are. I know what your real need is for salvation, for forgiveness. See, sometimes we come to God with our list of prayer requests. (laughs) And sometimes we think we know what's best for our friends and family. And we think, okay, God, I need you to help them find a job. I need you to help them to um, be more responsible. I need you to do this or that, the other thing. I need you to heal them of this sickness or disease. I need you to come through in our finances. I I need you to help me when I'm having a hard time figuring out what to do in my job. I need you to show me what's next, the next step for my future. I need you to open up that placement at school. I, I need you to do this. God, I need this. I need that. I need this. And sometimes what we neglect to see is that God knows what our real needs are. Not just what our obvious needs are but what the needs are that other people might not see on first glance, that other people might not even know we have, that we might not even be aware we have. And Jesus says to him, my child, your sins are forgiven. What is that need deep in each of our souls? It is a need for a savior. It is the need for our sins to be forgiven. And the only person who can forgive our sins is God. The Pharisees knew this. They're pretty upset. They're pretty upset. And they use the word blasphemy. In other words, you're you're calling yourself God. You're saying you're equal with God to be able to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And they're completely right. A plus in theology class, only God can forgive sins. And here Jesus is revealing to this paralyzed man and to everyone listening and watching him that he is God through this act when he says, your sins are forgiven. So he, he deals with his real need. That's the first thing he does. And so he's right down in front of Jesus. If you're right in front of Jesus, what would you ask him for? <laughs> if you're this paralyzed man, what is it you perceive to be your greatest need? Is it for... Um, more security? Is it for to know what the, the next right thing to do is in life? Is it for direction or purpose? Is it for a relationship? Is it for peace in your family? Is it for your health? Is it for fill in the blank? 
What would you ask him for? What's your greatest need? See, regardless of what we may bring to him, we can trust that he knows what is best. I I love this quote by Tim Keller concerning prayer. He says, quote, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows, unquote. So God will either give us what we ask for or he will give us what we should have asked for if we knew what he knew. And this paralyzed man and his friends, I'm sure they want his legs to be healed. But Jesus sees what he should ask for, just forgiveness of sins. And he doesn't even wait for that prayer to to leave his heart and, and, and exit out his lips. He goes right for the heart of it and says, your sins are forgiven. And immediately he's met with this pushback. How can you say this? This, The the Pharisees, the scribes of the law. So think, you know, modern day, the pastors or the, the seminary professors, the people who knew what's up. They start thinking and questioning in their heart. How could he say this? Who does he think he is? This is blasphemy. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what their real need is too. They need to know who he really is. And he reveals himself to them, even if they don't receive him. So he knows immediately what they're thinking. And he starts to ask them, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? It's basically a trick question. (laughs) Because if you could easily say the words, your sins are forgiven, but you can't back that up if you can't heal the paralytic. And it's easier to say, pick up your mat and walk because only God can forgive sins. And so they're kind of caught in this conundrum of not being able to answer that question. Jesus is great with those questions that can't be answered, (laughs) but that reveal hearts. And so what he does is he says to the paralytic, not just my child, your sins are forgiven. But then he turns to him and says, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. So Jesus does the impossible twice. (laughs) One, he forgives sins. That's impossible for man, but possible for God because only God can forgive sins. And then he does the impossible thing of healing this man. It's like a physical picture of a spiritual reality. In sin, we become paralyzed and we can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And God saves us through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and what he has done. And so Jesus, knowing that, he says, your sins are forgiven. I have forgiven you. It's not just one day out of the year, the day of atonement. But for Jews, that would have been the one day they could approach God, come before him, sacrifice the lambs, and and have that serve as a day of forgiveness. But he's saying every day, You can have your sins forgiven because I am that sacrificial lamb, because I have authority. And he has authority not just to forgive this man's sins, but also to heal him. And so the man, what does he do? He has this response. He jumps up, grabs his mat, and walks out through the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed and praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So there's three different responses I see here. The response of the paralytic. He responds with joy. He jumps up. He grabs his mat. He walks out for the first time in however long or forever. 
He's able to walk. He's a walking miracle. He's a walking signpost to what God can do. And so now everyone who knew this man, the four friends that had lowered him down, they they can be full of joy and amazement. Wow, look what God has done. But it's also a reminder that Jesus is God. He's a walking reminder that Jesus is God and look what he can do. Our lives can serve as a walking sign and a reminder to others that, wow, when we open up our lives and we allow other people to see, I have this real need and we can partner with them in a miracle. They can partner then with us in the joy of receiving God's answer to that request. And so in his response, he he has this, this joy and this action and his life becoming a message for what Christ has done for him. And then you have the, the response of the people. They start praising God. They said, we've never seen anything like this before. They start telling other people, you know, this is amazing. This is, look what God has done. God receives glory and God receives so much praise. They've never seen anything like this before. And then I'm going to say the response of the Pharisees, the response of those who knew better. <laughs> we see that this charge of blasphemy is really what they bring to Pilate when they're talking to him at, about putting Jesus on the cross. This man is a blasphemer. This blasphemy of comparing himself to God, of saying that he is God, of saying he can forgive sins. In other words, he is God. This leads them to, to try to take Jesus down. There's a doubt here. The questioning in their hearts continues. Their response is not one of joy and amazement. It's not one of worshiping God and saying, God, you have come to earth. But those who should have known better, they missed it. They missed the piece of history that they were in. They missed seeing the greater miracle. Yes, they saw a man who couldn't walk, walk out of there. But they missed the forgiveness of sins that could have been theirs. They missed who was the miracle worker. They missed that relationship piece. And so in our life, we can make room for God. How is God calling you? And how is he calling me to make room for him today? To make room for others to come to him? How can God use our lives, our time, our home, our resources to bring others to him, to put others right in front of Jesus? And then what are our real needs? Have we ever asked God, God, would you meet my real need? Help me to be aware of what my real need is. Show me my true condition before you. What is your real need today? Have you received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior do you know the forgiveness of sins and the freedom that comes from that? Do you have eternal assurance that your sins are forgiven? What's your real need? Not just your obvious need, but your real need. Trust him and come before him with that. Also, what is your response going to be? When Jesus responds to your prayer, to your request, to the room that has been made for him, what will your response be? Will it be like the paralytic? Will you be, let your life serve as a sign of what God can do? Will you be like the people? Will you give God praise and glory and celebrate in amazement and thanksgiving at what God has done? Or will you be like the Pharisees 
and question and judge and condemn and, and doubt. I doubt what God has done or doubt who he is and allow that miracle to harden your heart rather than to open it. We have a choice today, how we will respond. We have a choice today to bring our real needs to Christ. And we have a choice today to make room for God in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so I invite you in response to this sermon today to really start to think about that, to think about each of those sections and how God may be inviting you to respond to him. Let's pray. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray that in each of our lives that you would show us where we can make room for you. Areas of our heart that might have been closed off for a long time, would you help us, no matter how messy, to be willing to engage and open those areas? Areas of our life that have been off limits to other people, I pray that we would be willing to see what their needs are and to, be bring, to bring them to you in prayer and in other practical, mean, meaningful ways. And God, I pray that you would reveal to us what our real needs are and how you are meeting them. Help us to respond to you with joy. Help us to respond to you with right action. In your name we pray. Amen.